On November 14, 1997, a group of friends head to Flint River in Michigan, poles in hand. It is the wee hours of the morning and they are hoping to catch their fill before breakfast. The four friends come across a bundle in the park near the river. It looks like something wrapped in a blanket. It's November in Michigan, so camping doesn't seem likely. What the hell is a blanket doing here? As the friends get closer, they see what looks to be not just a blanket, not trash, not even an animal. What they see is a person. A woman. Hi, Curious Listener. Welcome back to Corn Fed Killer. Or if this is your first time listening, welcome to Corn Fed Killer. I am very pleased to have you listening in today. I'm your host, Michelle O'Dell. And the case I have for you today is that of the brutal and senseless murder of Nancy Billiter. Detective Kenneth, Ke- sorry, Kevin. Shanlian of the Genesee County Sheriff's Department arrives on the scene. He'd been dispatched to a possible homicide. Unfortunately, homicide was not unusual in Flint, Michigan at this time. In fact, Flint was had one of the highest murder rates in the country. Even so, these kinds of scenes were not something one really ever got used to. And this one, this one was more brutal than most. As Shanlin approached the body, he noted what appeared to be a narrow path of burned leaves and grass that led from the parking lot to the body, as if someone had tried to light the body on fire but had failed. If the killer had wanted to prevent ID, identification, and get rid of evidence by burning the body, why wouldn't he stick around long enough to make sure that the body had lit? Seems odd, but there was really nothing normal about this case, as he would soon learn. It was clear that the woman had been beaten. She had met a violent end. Her face was bruised and swollen. Dried blood was sticking in her hair and on her face. She had visible cuts on her face and head. Upon closer inspection, Detective Shanlan discovered wounds on her belly, her thighs, and that her pants and underwear had been yanked down revealing a circular wound near her vagina. It appeared as though she may have been sexually assaulted, though they wouldn't know for sure until the body was examined by the M.E. Shanlian noted ligature marks on the woman's wrists and ankles. She had been bound prior to death. She had blood under her fingernails and defensive wounds on her hands and arms and face. She had fought hard for her life. Additionally, there was a large sapphire ring on one of her fingers, so robbery was probably not a motive. Who was this woman, and why would someone do this to her? Shanlian saw that the maroon shirt that the body wore had the words South Boulevard embroidered on the breast pocket. Maybe some kind of uniform. Shanlian suspected maybe a waitress uniform. He had one of the officers search businesses in the area for the words South Boulevard in their names. 
Shanlian was not surprised to learn that in nearby Auburn Hills, there existed a restaurant named South Boulevard Station. Detective Shanlian and Detective Chuck Melky head to Auburn Hills. They go to the Auburn Hills Police Department to brief the officers there and to hopefully obtain their assistance in identifying their victim. The detectives, now accompanied by two Auburn Hills officers, arrive at South Boulevard Station, a cozy restaurant bar, just like the hundreds of others you would find in any Midwest town. At the restaurant, police describe their Jane Doe to the, the manager, a man named Grant. He says that the description sounds like that of a waitress that works there named Nancy Billiter. He tells police that he had been worried about her because she had missed her last two shifts and he had called her and couldn't get a hold of her. Grant is shown a picture of the body and positively IDs the victim as Nancy Billiter. He tells the officers that he last saw her on Tuesday, November 11th, the last time she worked. He shows police her time card, which indicates that she clocked out at 10 p.m. on Tuesday night. Police inquire about Nancy's friends and her life in general, her comings and goings, anything that Grant can tell them. Grant tells them that Nancy was friends with a woman named Carol Giles and that Carol had even called the restaurant looking for her. He tells them that she was friendly with the hostess, Yvonne, and really most people. She was a warm person, a friendly person. She did have one vice, however. She was an addict. Cocaine, her drug of choice. Next, officers speak with the hostess, Yvonne, who confirms Nancy's drug problem and that she was friends with Carol Giles. She tells the officers that Carol and Nancy had had an argument, that Carol had accused Nancy of stealing from her, that Nancy was upset about the argument and had mentioned it the last time she worked, which was Tuesday night. Yvonne tells officers that that night she was also working and that Nancy had hung around a little while after she clocked out at 10, waiting for a ride home. Finally, a regular, a man named Bill Bernard, borrowed Yvonne's car, and drove Nancy home. Yvonne tells them that he drove, the home, drove her home and came right back. She says that he left to drive her home around 11 and was back in minutes. He hung around until the restaurant closed, around 1. Detectives questioned her about Bill, about his demeanor, and about the state of the car after he borrowed it. Yvonne assured police that Bill wasn't acting odd, he wasn't sweaty or mis... His clothes weren't, you know, mussed up or anything like that. He hadn't changed his clothes. He didn't seem nervous or scared in any way. And the car was exactly as she had given it to him when he returned it. Bill Bernard was not their killer. So the next stop is Nancy's house, or more precisely, Nancy's mother's house, Phyllis Burke. Phyllis was a kind woman, the mother of three daughters and one son. Nancy had lived with her pretty much all of her life until about a month ago when they had gotten into an argument and Phyllis had asked Nancy to leave. Learning that her daughter had been murdered, Phyllis regretted that decision now. She tells the officers that she saw her daughter about a week ago when she came to visit her grandson whom Phyllis had been taking care of since Nancy left in October. 
even though Nancy had custody of him. You see, Nancy had a daughter named Stacy who lived in Florida and had gotten herself into some trouble, so Nancy obtained custody of Stacy's son and was raising him here in Michigan. Stacy and Nancy were still close, though. There wasn't any bad blood between them. Nancy doted on the boy. Phyllis called her other daughters, Nancy's sisters, Susan and Karen, and informed them that Nancy had been murdered. Each of them rushed right over. Susan and Karen spoke to detectives and were able to shed some light on just who their murder victim was. The sisters tell detectives that they had all grown up in Auburn Hills, which is an upper middle class suburb of Detroit, the three girls and their brother, Doug. They were a close-knit family. And then tragedy struck when Nancy was just eight years old. Their father was killed in an automobile accident, leaving their then 26-year-old mother, who did not work due to a disability, to provide for and raise the children on her own. They got by on Phyllis's Social Security benefits and help from family and friends. The sisters described Nancy as a happy kid and a kind person, an average student in high school, and she had aspirations to be a nurse. She had enrolled in nursing school until she became pregnant at age 19. She had a daughter whom she named Stacy, and that's when she started working as a waitress, often working 12-hour shifts to provide for herself and for her daughter. As an adult, Nancy had gotten into softball and played on community softball leagues, and she was good at it. She did get married once in her early 30s, but it didn't work out. The sisters told police that sometime in the early 90s, Nancy had started using cocaine. Susan said that she was really trying to get clean, and she still had dreams of becoming a nurse. So Nancy is, you know, a hardworking mom, a loving person. Yes, she's got a problem, but she's working on it, and she hasn't surrendered her dreams yet. She's still working towards her goals. She had recently enrolled in a nursing assistant program. The sisters could not think of anyone that would want to hurt Nancy. Everyone loved her. They did mention the argument that she had had with her roommate, Carol. So now this is the third time they're hearing Carol's name. There was something there. Detectives knew it. The sisters told detectives that Carol's VCR and some jewelry had been stolen while she was out of town, and that Nancy told her that the home had been broken into, but Carol didn't believe it. The sisters didn't think Nancy would steal from her friend. That just was not the kind of person that Nancy was. The police were confused by one thing. The sisters had called Carol Giles Nancy's roommate, but they thought she lived with their mother, Phyllis. Susan explained that Nancy didn't technically live with Carol, but that Carol's husband had died some months prior and that Nancy had started staying with her friend to help her through the grief and to help out with Carol's two children. Phyllis said that Nancy told her, Carol's my best friend and I'm not going to let anything happen to her. The sister says that she had been planning on moving back in, that clearly the argument with their mother had blown over. Um, but she just wanted to help her friend out. And when asked about Carol, the sisters thought she couldn't have hurt Nancy. They were friends. So detectives head over to Carrie, Carol Giles' house. They knock on the door. No one answers. While standing outside the house, they call her. 
She doesn't answer. They decide to stake out the house and wait. They don't have to wait long at all. They watch as a Mercury Sable pulls into the driveway and a woman gets out of the car. Carol Giles, they assume. She goes inside and just a couple minutes later, she gets back in the car and makes to leave. But the police block her way. She gets out of the car and the officers identify themselves and inform her that they need to ask her some questions about the murder of Nancy Billiter. Carol Giles tells police that she last saw Nancy on Tuesday. Then she says, oh no, I think it was Thursday. Yeah, she called someone to pick her up late Thursday, around 1.30 a.m., and then she left. Police ask her if she has any drugs or weapons on her. Surprisingly, Carol says, yeah, I do have drugs on me, and she empties her pockets. She has some cocaine, two syringes, and a small electronic scale on her. She then informs police that she has a handgun in the car. The gun is not loaded and doesn't appear to have been recently fired. Carol is being cooperative, maybe too cooperative. Shanlian has a weird feeling about her. Police ask her if they go if they can go inside the house and talk. She agrees. Once inside, police ask her for permission to search her car and her home. Astonishingly, she agrees and signs a consent to search form. Carol tells Shanlian that she bought the cocaine from a dealer in Rochester and that she was taking it to her boyfriend, Tim Collier, in Flint. She says that's where she was going when they stopped her. Shanlian asks for Collier's address. She said she doesn't know it, but she can take them there if they want. Shanlian asks her how she got to be friends with Nancy, and Carol tells Shanlian that she met Nancy through her dead husband, Jesse Giles. She tells the detective that Jesse used to be Nancy's cocaine dealer. Shanlian asks her once again, when was the last time that she saw Nancy? This time, she says that Nancy arrived home at 11 on Tuesday evening. She said somebody dropped Nancy off, but she didn't see who it was. She says that her boyfriend, Tim Collier, and Nancy went downstairs to smoke crack. And that Tim confronted Nancy about the burglary, burglary, accusing her of making it up, and that she's and stealing the VCR herself. Carol tells Shanlian that Nancy got so upset that she called a friend at 1.30 to come and pick her up. She tells Shanlian that Nancy was wearing her work clothes when she left, and that she couldn't understand why she didn't take a coat because it was cold out. Shanlian isn't buying her crap for a second. He flat out asks her, did you kill Nancy? She says no, of course. He asks her if Tim Collier killed Nancy. She answers, I don't know. Shanlian suggests they go to the police station to finish the interview. Carol Giles agrees. At the station, Shanlian asks her where they can find her boyfriend, Tim Collier, and what kind of car he drives. This time, she gives the information up. She explains to Shanlian that Tim has been driving around in her dead husband, Jesse's gold-colored Cadillac. She tells Shanlian that her husband died about nine months ago, that he was a diabetic with heart problems, and that he weighed nearly 500 pounds, and that she thinks that he knew he was going to have a heart attack and die. And so he told her to go shopping so she wouldn't have to witness his death. 
She explains that when she got back from her day of shopping, she found him dead. She describes how horrifying it had been discovering him like that. She says that they had been together since she was just 15. In one breath, she is singing Jesse's praises. Then in the next, she's describing him as an abusive monster. She tells Shanlin that he was awful to her, mean and critical, and a drug dealer, and would sometimes prostitute her out to his clients. Shanlin doesn't know what to think about Jesse, and doesn't see, at least not yet, how Jesse is relevant to Nancy's murder case. He asks Carol if she's afraid of Tim Collier. She says that yes, she is, and that he told her that he had killed seven people. Remembering the burns on Nancy's arm, Shanlian asks Carol if he had ever burned her with a bong. He had remembered seeing a bong in their house. She says no, quote, he used acid for that. And then she suddenly breaks down crying and starts spilling her guts. She says that the three of them, Carol, Nancy, and Tim, were hanging out in the basement that Tuesday night. Nancy and Tim were smoking crack. When she and Tim confronted Nancy about the burglary, Carol says that she told Nancy that she knew she was lying about it because she had found her kids' Coca-Cola bottle-shaped piggy bank in the trunk of the car that Nancy had been driving while she and Tim were in California. Carol shows Nancy the bank, but Nancy denies having taken it. Then Carol says that she thought she heard something upstairs. Thinking maybe one of her children had woken up, she went upstairs to check on them. She tells police that when she got back to the basement, Tim had Nancy tied to the bed with pantyhose and was beating her with his pistol, hitting her in the stomach and the face. She tells investigators that she noticed that one of Nancy's pants legs was off, which she thought was weird, but she didn't dare ask. Nancy was screaming and he kept yelling at her and hitting her with the gun. Carol says that then Tim pointed the gun at her and terrified, she ran up the stairs. This did not sit well with Shanlian. It just didn't make sense to him. If someone points a gun at you, you freeze. You don't run because the idea is that if you run, they'll shoot you, right? Shanlian doesn't challenge Carol on this point. However, he wants her to keep talking and she does. She continues saying that upstairs, she smoked two cigarettes and then just sat there, scared and wondering what to do. To this I say, uh, bullshit. If someone points a gun at you and you manage to get away, you don't just sit down and turn on the TV and enjoy a couple smokes. Especially if your kids are in the fucking house, right? You grab the kids and you pepper your ass out of there. Getting your kids and yourself to safety, right? I mean, right? <laughs> so, in any event, Carol says that after her two smokes, Kim com Tim came back up the stairs, turned off the lights, turned off the TV, and started acting all paranoid, saying that they know what we did. She says that she tells him, what you did, I didn't do anything. Again, BS. If she's that afraid of him, she's not going to say that, right? 
He tells her that police would never believe her. She says he was pacing. She knew it was the crack that was making him act like that. He was looking out the windows, freaking out. And then it suddenly dawns on her that it's almost time to get the kids up for school. So she gets them up and out the door to catch the bus. Tim, once again, smokes some crack. He tells her that she has to help him get rid of Nancy. She says that he was yelling at her to help him lift Nancy up and get her up the stairs. But she says she just couldn't do it. She was my friend. Shanlian isn't buying this for a second. He knows in his gut that Carol Giles is not the innocent, frightened damsel that she is pretending to be. She tells Shanlian that she accompanied Collier to the park where he dumped her friend's body and made her douse her in gasoline and try to light her on fire. West Bloomfield detective Tom Helton arrives as Carol is writing out her statement. He and Shanlian discuss what to do next. They don't have enough to arrest her or even keep her there. They don't want to just let her go back to Tim Collier. They might make a run for it or destroy evidence. They decide that they should have her stay in a local battered women's shelter for the night. This would not only keep her away from Tim Collier, but would also keep her thinking that the police are on her side, not to mention give them time to catch up with Collier themselves. Meanwhile, Shanlian and Helton are told what the search of Carol's car has yielded. In the car, they found a 32 caliber Titan pistol, a piece of paper with handwritten directions to a road near Flint, Flint, the dump site, basically, as well as Nancy Billiter's driver's license. There was what looked to be blood found on the carpet in the trunk, and it was removed and sent for testing. And interestingly, there was a plastic jug containing battery acid also found in the car. This is baffling. What the heck? What's, what's, it, what's battery acid doing in the car? They'll find out. Helton and Shanlian decide to stake out Carol's house to see if Collier re happens to show up there. They're not sitting there long. Then wouldn't you know it, a gold caddy pulls up. Tim is driving and he has a passenger with him. They stop the car and arrest Collier on suspicion for the murder of Nancy Billiter. His passenger, a man named John Ellis, police discover has a warrant out for failure to appear for unpaid tickets, and they arrest him too. Bad day for Ellis. Helton said of Tim Collier that he, quote, felt mean, end quote. It wasn't that he looked mean or even acted mean. He felt mean. At the station, police show Collier Carroll's written statement. He shows little reaction. They ask him if he killed Nancy. He says, why would I kill Nancy? They ask him if Carol killed Nancy. He says, that's for you to find out. Then he says, I'm not saying anything until I get an attorney. He does, however, give police a written statement. And as I'm sure this comes as no surprise to you, curious listener, Tim points the finger at Carol asserting that Carol was the culpable one, not him. He says that Carol hit Nancy with the piggy bank. She tied Nancy up. She beat Nancy. And then she, 
injected Nancy with the bleach and the battery acid. And it turns out that that is what Carol had been doing when police stopped her at the house. She had been getting the battery acid to get rid of it. Tim further says that Carol decided that the bleach and the battery acid wasn't killing Nancy quick enough. So she takes a wet paper towel and puts it over Nancy's face to suffocate her. Once she was dead, he says that he helped her get her up the stairs and into the trunk of the car and dump her body. Oh, so they're pointing fingers. So who the hell is telling the truth? Tim is clearly a mean, vile human. But Helton is not convinced that he's 100% lying. Carol is definitely lying. But the question is, to what degree? Detectives know that in cases like this, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Forensically, they have Nancy's clothes, that reek of gasoline, blood spatter that was found in the Giles' basement, as well as a mattress that was hidden in the garage rafters that is soaked in blood and bleach. They need more. Detective Messina, who is also working the case, enlists the help of Chester Romatowski. He asks Romatowski to administer a polygraph on Carol Giles. Now, let's see what the autopsy reveals. Curious listener, I must warn you that the list of injuries suffered by Nancy as revealed by the autopsy is extremely disturbing and difficult to listen to. Trust me, I will not be offended if you decide to skip ahead. Medical examiner Dragovic noted that Nancy Billiter had a large amount of dried blood in her nostrils and her nose appeared to have been broken. It was scraped up and appeared swollen. Her lips were swollen, split, and extensively torn. There existed a large amount of blood in her mouth and aspirated in both her upper and lower airways. Blunt force trauma was present on her temple, her ear, the back of her head, and her right eye socket was extensively damaged. Her neck, chest, and abdomen were bruised and clearly injured. Dragovic noted that Nancy had deep and artificial or skin deep chemical burns on the right and left sides of her neck, on her upper and mid abdomen, her inner and outer thigh, and near the groin. Her wrists and ankles also showed lig ligature marks. Nancy suffered tears to her scalp as well as brain swelling. Her legs were bruised and clearly traumatized. Her anus showed tearing and trauma. Someone had sodomized her. She had multiple cracked ribs. There were multiple injection sites present on her lower and upper body with varying degrees of chemical burns on and around the sites of injection. 
Dragovic took samples of her hair, her pubic hair, as well as swabs from her mouth, nose, and anus, and from underneath her fingernails, and all of these were sent to the lab to be tested. Dragovic detailed Nancy Billiter's cause of death as, quote, asphyxia due to oxygen deprivation brought about by aspiration of blood into the upper and lower airways resulting from blunt force trauma of the face and nose and blockage of upper airways by gagging. Essentially, Nancy Billiter had choked on her own blood. <sighs> Could Carol and Tim really have tortured and murdered Nancy in such a brutal way simply because they thought she stole a VCR and a piggy bank? It just didn't add up. Sure, people have certainly been murdered for less. Detectives knew that. But to them, there had to be more, didn't there? Well, the more actually came from none other than Tim Collier. Sitting in jail, Tim Collier had a lot of time to think and to stew and to get angry. And he was furious at Carol. He asks an officer, quote, can you prove it after someone has been buried that they've been murdered? End quote. Well, this officer gets him in touch with detectives and they bring him down to the station where Tim describes how about nine months ago he had provided Carol with heroin at her request so that she could murder her husband, Jesse Giles. You remember Jesse. Carol had told police that he had died of a heart attack. Tim says that Carol mixed the heroin with Jesse's insulin and injected him, like she always had. He didn't suspect a thing. She injected his insulin for him every single day. The combination killed him. And no one was the wiser. Given his size and health conditions, everyone assumed that he had had a heart attack. No autopsy was done. And Carol and Tim, by way of helping her, had gotten away with murder. Well, at least until now. When confronted with Tim's statement, accusing Carol of killing Jesse, Carol bursts into tears and admits to killing her husband. But she says it was all Tim's idea that he was the impetus behind the murder. She says that Tim insisted that she do it so they could be together, that Jesse deserved it for being so mean to her. And that was the reason that Tim said they had to kill Nancy because he was sure that Nancy had overheard them talking about killing Jesse and that she would rat them out. There's the more curious listener. There's the motive. She continued through tears, pointing the finger at Tim, saying that she was scared of him, that he had forced her to do it. Apparently, Carol had not cottoned on to the fact that detectives had grown tired of her damsel in distress act and they weren't buying a second of it. They believed that she was cold and calculating and that she 
was the mastermind behind the murders of Jesse Giles and Nancy Billiter. Police and prosecutors moved forward on both. On January 6, 1998, Carol Giles and Tim Collier are arraigned for the first-degree murder of Nancy Billiter. Both are indicted. Three days later, the pair is arraigned and indicted for the murder of Jesse Giles. They are both remanded to prison whilst they await their trial. The couple would be tried at the same time, but would each have their own jury. Odd. <laughs> this is odd. It's something that does not happen very often. Oftentimes, if there are multiple killers, they will have separate trials. Sometimes they get tried together, but in those cases, typically there is one jury. But in this instance, they each had their own jury of their peers. Anyway, the trial for Jesse's murder took place first. And against her attorney's advice, Carol took the stand. She once again tried the damsel in distress routine. The jury didn't fall for it either. On June 18, 1998, after just 20 minutes of deliberation, the jury found Carol guilty of the first-degree murder of Jesse Giles. And after just one hour of deliberation, his jury found Tim Collier guilty of first-degree murder. Murder. Excuse me. The trial for Nancy's murder was next. This was an emotional and an extremely distressing trial for Nancy's family. The ME's testimony was gruesome. As you know, her injuries were extensive. The mentioning of the sodomy was almost too much to bear. It did never come out for sure if it was Tim or Carol. If Carol had sodomized Nancy with an object, many thought maybe the Coke bottle, uh, bank, piggy bank. Or if, Carol, or if Tim had sodomized her using a condom as none of his fluids were found on her. But it was clear that someone had done that to her that night as part of the torture and murder. And as you can imagine, that was extremely hard for her family, especially her mother, to listen to. Crime scene photos and photos from the autopsy were shown in the courtroom. And several members of Nancy's family fled when those were shown. It was just too much to handle. Nancy's mother was quoted as saying, There was no way in the world Nancy knew about Jesse's murder. I don't know if we'll get through this or not. Nancy was a good person. She loved everybody. That's what I don't understand. She was good to Carol. End quote. Heartbreaking. Just heartbreaking. Um, you know, by all accounts, Nancy, yeah, she had her problems, but she was a good, decent, kind human. And they killed her for it. All right, Carol Giles as well as Tim Collier, were found guilty of the first-degree murder of Nancy Billiter. When Carol's verdict was pronounced, Nancy's daughter Stacy, with tears running down her face, stood up in the courtroom 
and clapped loudly. Outside the courtroom, Stacy told reporters, quote, Not only have I lost my mother, but also my father, sister, and brother, because she was all of those things to me. She went out of her way to help friends, like she tried to do for Carol and Tim. End quote. Oh, awful, just awful. Tim Collier's and Carol Giles's sentencing hearing took place on October 9th, 1998. Before the judge handed down his sentence, as per the custom, he asked the defendants if they wanted to say anything. Tim declined to make a statement. Carol apologized. And to that I say, fuck the right, fuck off. Fuck the right the hell off, you know? Uh, I always hate that when um, they make a statement and it's a and it's an apology. You know, it's kind of like a catch twenty two because you do want them to feel sorry, but their sorry doesn't mean anything, right? So I don't know which is better. I think it's better if they just say nothing. I mean, I feel like someone who viciously, brutally murders another human being gives up the right to address that human being's loved ones. That's how I feel about it. All right. So anyway, Judge Nicholas sentenced both Tim and Carol to life in prison without the possibility of parole, saying, quote, You look at these actions, at man's inhumanity to man, and you cannot even fathom it. You will spend the rest of your life in prison trying to remember what it's like to be a human being, end quote. Mic drop, am I right? That curious listener, I think, sums it up. Sums it up. Visit us on Instagram at cornfedkillerpodcast and send me an email with your spooky stories and episode suggestions to cornfedkillerpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, curious listener.